Welcome to the Business Gorillas Podcast, where the biggest, baddest, and most fearless business owners pull the curtains back and reveal their most tightly guarded secrets and strategies. With your host, serial entrepreneur and marketing visionary, Josh Rosenberg. Buckle up. It's time to get started. What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Business Grills Podcast. I am your host, Josh Rosenberg. And today I have an awesome guest. His name is Ryan Niddle, ryannittle.com. Um, Ryan has been making a lot of waves in helping companies to raise their valuation multiple so that they can be sold for the highest profit margin possible. This is something very near and dear to my heart. So I'm very excited. Ryan, thank you very much for being here. Josh, I'm honored. Thanks for having me. Really excited for this. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, right off the bat, can you tell us a little bit about your business, how you got started in it? What kind of led you to this uh, path that you're on now? Because this is not the typical kind of business that somebody starts as their first venture. It's certainly not, Josh. I mean, this is, I'd love to say there was this massive plan that I mapped out and it was perfectly orchestrated, but it'd be a complete and utter lie. What happened for me was engineering by degree, right? Math and science came really easy to me, but I knew pretty early in my engineering journey, I didn't like sitting behind a computer. I was more extroverted than introverted, but it was it was just something, oddly enough, that was a quote unquote easy degree to get. Eventually use that to get in the illustrious world of automotive car sales, right? I was a used car salesman when I got out of college and I downplay that a little bit, but I ended up running a, a really large um, European automotive group here in Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from a place called Midwestern Auto Group as a general sales manager, used that to eventually jump into web hosting. And that was my, really my first taste of entrepreneurial freedom and success. I came on to a startup web hosting company out of Akron, Ohio. It had 10,000 clients when I came on board. I was brought on as an affiliate manager and over 18 months grew to 580,000 clients before we sold it to GoDaddy. And that was the first taste wow. of you know, rapid, rapid acceleration, rapid growth all the, the blessings and curses that come from that. And also my first foray into, into an exit. So during that time period, I took over as president and CEO, bought out a couple of partners, went through some capital raising. And admittedly, Josh, I knew absolutely nothing. I was so pigheaded. I was so convinced I knew everything. I didn't seek enough help. And it was a, a really sloppy exit to say it politely. That then led me into high-risk merchant processing, which is the first time I got my teeth kicked in. And I think that's a, an important part of every entrepreneur's journey. Like I, I had the money from my eggs. I'm like, I'm, I'm King Midas now. Anything I touch is going to turn to gold. I've got everything figured out in the world at 29. Secret. I still don't have things figured out at 38, but back then I thought I did. And started a merchant processing company. Uh, 12, 14 months later, I'm writing a multiple six-figure check to shut down the business. It didn't work at all. So not only did I burn through all the cash from my exit, but the business itself folded, which eventually led into a, a custom clothing company, which I grew in and sold off which led to a CBD company that I grew and sold to private equity, which then had me sitting around, gosh, in 2018 saying, I have no idea what to do next. I don't, I don't have any clue, right? I've had some wins. And what I found was people that I had met over the course of my life were reaching out, asking if I could share with them the tips on how I sold some businesses. And it wasn't because I don't have an MBA. I don't have a, a sophisticated finance background. They just really wanted to know in the trenches what to expect. And that led me to help I think it was 12 or 14 different businesses go through their own level of liquidity event, right? Capital gains event, whether a sell or recapitalization or bring on new partners. And all of a sudden I started seeing, and there's a, there's an actual formula to this. There's a way that this all works because it's, it's now not only the three businesses I've sold, 
but I'm seeing it applied on 12, 13, 14 other businesses almost haphazardly, and, but it's, it's intentional in its own right. That then, Josh, leads us up to pretty much right now where some of those consulting agreements actually turn into equity positions. So I've kind of my, my swan song in this moment is I came on the ground floor, not necessarily ground floor, but uh, early 2019 came on to a business called MIT45, which is a Kratom, a consumable product called Kratom. The company mm-hmm. was doing five million a year at about a twenty million or twenty percent net margin, and as we're wrapping up this year, I'm I'm sitting in the CEO chair, uh, an equity partner in the business. We're going to do seventy-seven million at a forty-two percent net margin, right? No debt on our books. Really applying some of the principles that you or I would share with someone on how to really maximize the multiple for for their exit. We've just been doing it side by side, but my my business partners in that in that endeavor. Just acknowledge that, like you're literally not speaking a foreign language to me. We just come in and run the company, and we'll give you a good good chunk of equity for that. Like, well, of course, why why wouldn't I? So, I've had this this really twisty, turny path to get here to, to have the opportunity to speak with you, but it's all been from I'll use a Chet Holmes term: pickheaded discipline and determination. It's like I I don't know what I don't know, but I'm consistently seeking new inputs to understand some of my blind spots, which then create this. This may be, you know, no way that we can be predictable in maximizing those multiples for, for other individuals. Absolutely. And it sounds like um, we've kind of been running in parallel worlds for a very long time. Uh, most of my listeners know this. I got started in 2007. I had an adult-based business that I dealt with those high-risk processors for years, and it sucks. Um, having to leave them with a huge chunk of your revenue as collateral in case something happens and you may never see that money again, or if you need that cash, you may have to wait 90, 120 days to get it. And then there's all kinds of problems. What happens if they don't send it over and now you've got to get a lawyer and well, and it's a pain in the ass. So I wanted to get out of that business. So I know the headache that you went through probably just on the other side of that. And, you know, the idea of going, getting your MBAs, one, it's intimidating to a lot of people Two, It's unrealistic. You know, when you are right out of college, you're still young. You don't really have that much tying you down most of the time. So you can stay in school and get this advanced degree. But when you kind of get out of there and now maybe you're married, you have kids, you have to pay the bills, the mortgage, this, that going back to school, especially for something that takes time, like an MBA might just not be in the cards. But the thing is, is that most people don't realize you can sell your business in so many different ways, very quickly and easily. So I work with a lot of people that have abandoned perfectly good businesses because for one reason or another, it was working at some point, then it stopped working. They didn't have the knowledge or ability or cash flow to get it working again, to bring in the people necessary to get it working again. And they just let it die because they didn't realize that there were still assets there that are attractive to, to other buyers. They might take the whole business and only use 10% of it. Or they may say, you know what? I really want um, global rights to the licensing agreements for this IP. I don't give a shit about the rest of it. You know, there's so many different ways that this can be done. And when I sold my first business, it was at a two and a half X multiple. That's very low. I didn't know any better. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And if I had had the experience then that I do now, that would have gone for probably a seven and a half, eight X multiple just because of the nature of what that business was and the exclusivity that offered. But either way, if you have a business that you want to let go at the very least, and I often try to stay away from broker deals 
But at the very least, it's not a bad idea to talk to some brokers. And you can go on sites like BizBuySell and a bunch of others, and they will be happy to get on the phone with you and see what they think is the best advice. Now, when you get a little bit more experience, stay away from those deals. If you're going to a broker, they're going to screw it up more times than not. You're never going to find the best deals there, especially if you're in acquisition when you're looking to buy. Um, but if this is your very first time and you want to see what you can get as opposed to just shutting it all down, that's not the worst route to go. Um, all right. So what was your very first business venture? And I'm talking about if you had a lemonade stand when you were six or, you know, the thing that for the very first time you were selling, I mean, I remember as a kid growing up, there was, uh, all the, it's even those here in New York, there would uh, be these fairs, there'd be an empty parking lots. And I used to make these little uh, magnets and I would glue things to them. I would hot glue gun little things to them and make them look cool and shit. And they would just sit on the refrigerator. I sold them for a buck or two each. And I was probably about seven years old at that point. What about you? Did you have something when you were really young? I did, Josh. So, right, it was, I'm I'm 38. So I, I grew up when Tommy Hilfiger was a big thing. When the, the Jordans came out, they were a big thing. You know, Air Jordan tennis shoes. And I grew up in a, in a middle-class family and- as I saw these things that I wanted, that I that I had this desire for, my parents literally said, I think you're absolutely crazy. Why the hell would you spend $160 on a pair of tennis shoes or, or $60 a bottle of cologne? But if you want them, you can go out and earn money to get them. I'm like, gosh, I'm 10 years old. I, I have a desire for this thing and I don't have any idea how to make money. So we had this old solid steel lawnmower, not self-propelled. I had spray painted a bright blue. It was hideous. But we live in a neighborhood with about 100 homes. And I don't know if we were one of the first ones with a computer in our neighborhood, but I remember we had a computer and I, we had a printer. And I was able to, I think it was even before Microsoft Word was on our computer, but I figured out how to print up a little flyer and literally go door to door, cold calling, soliciting my neighbors to ask if I could mow their yard. It was a flat $10 per yard. Didn't matter how big the yard was. I was going to bring my own mower, my own gas. You tell me how many times you want it mowed and I'll come mow it. And Josh, I ended up having somewhere between seven and 10 lawns that wanted me to mow their, their lawn once a week. And so all of a sudden, you know, to me, I, again, I, I laughingly say that that Midas touch, I'm sitting there looking and, and saying, gosh, I'm making 70 to hundred dollars a week. And as a 10 year old, I'm the, I'm the wealthiest guy. You're that a millionaire. Exists. Yeah. You know, that's, a, that's a millionaire for a 10 year old. You can't tell me anything, right? I'm buying video games. I'm buying shoes. I'm doing all this stuff. And then my, my parents look around on the backside and say, well, you know, we're not going to pay for the gas and the lawnmower because you're using all the gas. So you got to buy the gas. My like, gosh, shoot and the, the blades are going dull. So you're gonna have to buy new blades and you have to figure out. How to, you, so all of a sudden the, the margins got compressed, right? Of, of course they do. And it, another good learning lesson, but from 10 until 14, it was during the summer months, I was a lawn mowing guy. I'd save enough money because I didn't really like to shovel snow in the winter. And that was, that was just what I did. And uh, at 10 years old, margins aren't anything. What, it, what a 10 year old thinks of margins, the parents see as a screaming temper tantrum. <laughs> yes. Almost like uh, when they bring a, a six-year-old down the cereal aisle and they see the, the sugary cereal with the toy in it and the parent says no and the entire supermarket has to hear about it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so what is it do you think that is that you bring to a business that moves the needle more than anything else that you do? Is there one or two specific things, skills that, that you have that uh, really boost up the productivity and the, the revenue? Yeah, I would say, Josh, it's at, at, the, at the macro level, it's the life experience of all the mistakes I've made. And it's being the dumbest guy in the room 
for a season. And when I say a dumbest guy in a room for a season, I literally just look at a business and keep asking why. And it's not to drive deep into it. It's just, okay, you're doing this this way. Why did you do it that way? Have you tried something differently? And it doesn't, we don't have to get into Six Sigma and lean manufacturing and supply chain optimization. We don't have to get into cash to cash cycle and, and how to shorten that down. Sure, there's, those are the micro, right? Those are all the tactical. But it starts sure. by, to me, just questioning our thinking. Like, why Why as a business owner did you make the decision to buy from this one vendor? When's the last time you went and cross shop vendors? When's the last time you've renegotiated contracts? It just opens up this, this whole litany of different opportunities where, a lot of business owners I get the privilege of working with think there's going to be this massive epiphany that happens. And I look at it a little bit differently. It's the, the theory, the principle that small hinges swing big doors. It's a combination of really small tweaks to a system that's typically already working, right? My specialty, Josh, is more in those businesses that are five to $10 million a year in annualized revenue. They've been around for you know five, six, seven years or more. They're not flailing. They're not bleeding. They're not hemorrhaging. They're just stuck. And they're like, well, I don't know what to do next. The lifestyle is pretty good. They're running a you know 15 to 25% net margin. The owners, the founders are making good cash, but they're accidental entrepreneurs, right? They, they lucked into the business. They didn't have a formal education. They didn't know what they didn't know. And so that opens that door for me to walk into and saying, look, I, I don't know anything about your business. Educate me, help me understand. And then are you open to me sharing things that I did that didn't work? And then also now, a series of things that might work. And let me explain why they might work, which is, which is really the, the two, the two entry points for me. Absolutely. You said something a moment ago that I absolutely love about uh, small hinges swinging big doors. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've always said when I approach a client, whether I'm helping them prepare for an exit or I'm helping to improve their marketing, I would rather find four specific areas that we can improve by 5% rather than trying to find one area that moves the needle by 20%. You don't always have that option. A lot of times it can be incredibly expensive and risky to try and change something that drastically. And if it flops, you've just caused so many new problems. Whereas finding a bunch of things that each uh, improve things by little bits, those start to add up. And each one of them is far less risky, less expensive, a lot quicker to find and implement. And, you know, yeah, if you get one of those lucky opportunities where you find some trash can asset that can magically add, you know, the 35% to your annualized revenue, that's incredible. You talk about that in every interview you do and every article you do and everything, because those are rare. And unfortunately, I hear from a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs that it's so common to hear those stories. They think that that's common and they think that that's in every business when it's simply not. No, it's certainly not in my experience. I mean, Josh, you're hitting the nail on the head to me. I'm going to, I want to go through the, the customer life cycle with someone. I want to see the marketing assets yeah. that exist. Can we get 5% more efficient our marketing efficiency ratio? Can I get conversions up 5%? Can I shorten down fulfillment time by 5%? Can I decrease cost of goods by 5% of the fulfillment expense? Can I increase retention by 5%? And can I increase reorders by 5%? And then can I increase you know, average shopping cart by 5%? Those collections of 5% become fascinating when you start really looking at a business. I mean, that's, that's what we did inside of MIT 45. That's how it's went from you know 5 million at 20% to 77 million at 40 plus percent is literally just by doing that over and over and over. It's like every quarter we sit down and start all over again. And we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? There's there's good changes that we've made that aren't, we're not ready to tweak or optimize or test against. But 
every quarter, the business is changing, the industry is changing. And that's the other thing I see quite often is, you know, we put on those racehorse type blinders and we're sprinting towards this desired outcome. And we start start kind of missing occasionally some of those external variables that we can take advantage of, right? What are the opportunities in the marketplace that maybe someone's not seeing because they're not well capitalized? They couldn't deploy assets in, into the field to buy up market share, right? Once you get a business running efficiently and effectively, the world becomes your playground. It becomes a really fascinating place to get some leverage and go out and just like you, you were talking about, you selling your first business. The arbitrage that exists in those small small market businesses is fascinating, right? I'm, I'm buying businesses right now inside of this vertical for two to four X multiple of earnings, which is great for a, a small enough business. But by the nature of how rapidly we've grown over the series of the past five years, our valuation is 12 to 14 X. And so I'm literally like instantly buying a business, putting our SOPs in place, centralizing fulfillment, centralizing manufacturing, buying it for three worth 14. Like I'll, I'll keep putting money into that cycle as many times as I can on the entry ramp uh, to the next exit. For anybody that might hear those numbers and might be a little bit confused or overwhelmed by it, just think about it this way. He's buying a company for, let's say, $100 and then immediately turning around and selling it for $1,400. You don't yeah. have to be a rocket scientist to realize that $1,400 is a whole lot more than $100. <laughs> the- it is. And, and oddly enough, once someone, once a business owner, or once as you're listening, you understand the quote unquote game, which I, I know many of you do. This is, this is repeatable in every industry. You get, there's some things to check for rapid growth, right? Are you growing at 20% per annum for more than two years in a row? I like to say three. Are, are your net margins remaining intact or growing through that life cycle? If so, you're starting to trend, trend into a rapid growth type of organization that instantly is getting your multiple up in that 10, 12, 14X range, if not even higher, depending on the industry, assuming your, your revenues are past you know $5 million a year or more. And all of a sudden you start going out for some of those smaller competitors, right? I'm buying businesses that are doing you know $8 million a year in revenue at you know a $2 million net margin. I'm turning around, I'm buying them for 6 million. And instantly that $2 million is worth 28 million in enterprise value. It's like, Sign me up for that over and over and over again. Oh, absolutely. And the best part is, is you don't need to have $10 million in your bank account to get started doing something like this. A lot of times you're not going to be coming out of your pocket at all. You can get lenders to, to loan you the money at usually the rates are pretty uh, reasonable depending on where you go. Obviously, if you go to a bank, the rates are going to be the highest there as opposed to a private lender. Or a lot of times, if you're dealing with somebody that's a little bit of a savvier business owner, they might fa- finance it for you. They may decide they want to be part of this adventure, part of the ride. So they'll finance it. They'll supply the team, you know, so whatever employees are needed to grow it. And then they get to participate on in the profits when the business is sold. So you don't have to worry about feeling like you, you took advantage of somebody buying their business for a hundred dollars and then immediately flipping for 1400 and, you know, leaving them with next to nothing, they get to enjoy some of that profit too. So it becomes something that everybody ends up winning on. Completely agree. All right. So let's change gears a little bit because all this is sounding really great and, and prosperous, but what's something about this business, this industry that just kind of makes your blood boil or something you find to be really sleazy, scummy, dishonest? Yeah, that's such a great question, Josh. For me, the things I dislike about, we'll call it the M&A business is twofold. One, to me, if you're not a pedigreed person that's in a large private equity fund, 
those individuals that are in those funds, in my interaction with them, they just instantly assume that I'm a country bumpkin that doesn't have any idea what's going on. So there's some some internal, I can use that to my advantage. Sometimes that's a, a great strategic advantage in negotiation. But there's this, it's a boys club. It, when it really comes mm-hmm. down to it, if you went to an Ivy League school and you, and you became one of the, you know, became part of maybe one of the big five from a, from a consulting standpoint, then you use that to get into private equity. And you're part of it, you know, a, a fund with, you know, 800 to a billion, 800 million to a billion dollars in assets under management. And you, you work through that level of grunt work. There's this, there's this badge of honor to be a part of that. And while that's beautiful, the guys, and I'll call it micro PE, like potentially you and I, those, you know, hundred million dollar funds and under some things that are a little more agile. It's like, we're, we're looked at as less than, and I think that's a little, a little fascinating because when I really get down to the brass tacks with some of the guys that have hit that part of the industry, quite honestly, we live a better lifestyle and I don't like to have a comparison, but we have a better lifestyle and we end up making more money and we have more, more quality time to, to do things that we want. So that's part I don't like about the industry. The other is the fact of, you know, if, if a business isn't prepared to go to an exit, but they think they are, they're going to get swallowed alive during a due diligence cycle. And they don't even realize how many multiples of earnings are going to be eradicated off the table because there's this thing that happens, right? You get so excited. You finally, you've grown your first business. You're, you're at the table. You've quote unquote sold your first business because you have a letter of intent. You go around telling all your friends, your family, like it's here. I've got my, my $10 million check. But by the time the due diligence cycle is done, you might be lucky to walk away with 4 million bucks. And out of that, there's going to be contingencies on it that are going to you know, go months or years in the future. You've got golden handcuffs. You just signed up for a boss. And it's 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 this fascinating thing where on the buy side, I understand the value to that. On the sell side, it's it's not even a plug for someone like you, Josh, but if you haven't been through it before, invest in someone that can help you not have that be the case. Because it's literally, you can, you can be prepared to go to an exit, have a level of auditing done, have a little of SOP documentation, have all your ducks in a row, and a good private equity group is still going to try to find some holes in it. They're still going to try to reduce their investment level. But instead of being shaved by, you know, two, three, four multiple of earnings, it might be shaved by a couple hundred grand, which is palatable. I, I can I can solve for that. Absolutely. And it, it's actually really not that hard to get started. There's plenty of free videos on YouTube that teach you the basics, that teach you the theory, almost like you're sitting there in a classroom and you learn it so that you get familiar with some of the dialogue, some of the language, how things work and why, what these uh, private equity funds are going to be looking for. And then you can go to somebody that's more experienced and you have their ask for their help. And now you already have a little bit of a foundation. You'll understand it conceptually, but now it's time to put that into action. And if you don't do that, you could really get taken to the cleaners. And what you said before about it being a boys club, 100% it is. I don't live very far from Wall Street, so I know a lot of these guys and I see it every day. And my God, is it this, it, it just, it reeks of Dracar Noir and uh, last month's or last year's BMW, just absolute slimery. And yes, they may be doing deals that on paper, the numbers are much bigger, but their teams are huge. The firm that they works for takes the lion's share of, of the commissions. The firm is taking 50% right off the top. Then if you're the junior broker, the guy that you're working for, the senior broker, they may all decide, eh, maybe you'll get two and a half, maybe you'll get 4%, 5% at most. So yeah, you close the deal that made a half a billion dollars. Wonderful. And yes, you went home with a really nice paycheck, but you have a lot of people to answer to. There's very risky. It could go away at any point. You, your cut is never hundred percent guaranteed. 
even though it kind of should be. Whereas what you and I do, where we're focusing on these smaller deals, we'll have a team of people around us that are more like partners and people that we can work with it or our go-to people that if we need marketing redone or we need the sales process redone, we need new introductions to new vendors and have vendor agreements renegotiated. Sure, they can handle those things for us because we've trusted them and we've done it, worked with them before and everyone goes home happy. So at the end of the day, the, the closing amount might be less, but we get to keep a much larger chunk of that. Yeah. And, and Josh, to me, it's, it's, in my opinion, it's just more enjoyable as well. Like being able to roll up your sleeves and work side by side with a small business owner that's poured their, their life's energy, their life's work is literally in our hands. And they're, they're entrusting us to either guide them through an exit or, or through an acquisition cycle that they haven't experienced before. And it, it becomes this bond to me, like those 12 or 13 individuals that I helped, you know, from the sidelines, help them sell their business in that, in that season of life as a consultant. Those are all still people that I'm having conversations with at least once a month because we become friends. It has nothing to do with business. And, and sometimes business deals come out of it, but it's, I don't see that in, in the bigger, you know, kind of in the bigger M&A world. It's just, it's, it's mechanized. It's, it's a means to an end. It's, you have a quota to hit as a salesperson. So you got to find the right deals. You got to push it through the hopper. You're just a number on a sheet of paper. And of course I have to acknowledge though, Josh, I'm saying that from having never experienced that it, it, for all I know, you know, I roll up my sleeves and I jump in there. I'm like, man, this is so much better than what I'm doing now. I just don't think so. I, I don't, the, the quality of life and the way we get to live is, is much more enjoyable than the 80, 90 hour work as a junior, junior associate. That's just getting yeah. ran, ran through the mud. My last uh, real job before I went off on my own in 2007 was I worked for a very large commercial real estate firm. And I worked with a number of hedge funds and private equity firms that needed to have uh, their leases renegotiated or to find new office space. So I got to see how they work, especially when you're at the junior level, you're a cog in the machine. They are going to squeeze every bit of juice out of you until you are completely dry. You're not there to make bonds and connections. You're there to work from six in the morning until midnight, seven days a week, get the job done, flip it, move on to the next and don't stop because you have to answer to the firm. And that's it. Your loyalty is only to the firm. And if you say you're sick, your kid fell, you know, had an accident, have to, you have to take him to the, uh, to the hospital because they got a broken arm. You could be cut. They could fire you for that reason. It's really, there is no loyalty. Uh, there's no friendship there and everybody's expendable. So, you know, I have had some experience in those environments and man, I hate it. So I think you were right on the money. I appreciate yeah. that. Now let's uh, get back to a little bit more cheeriness. Um, I have a feeling that you've got some pretty crazy stories that you got to experience something that if you were a nine to five or behind a desk, you never would have had an opportunity to, to be exposed to. Do you have anything uh, off the cuff you could think of? I've got one story that's got a couple parts that comes to mind. So, so bear with me as I, as I set the framework for this. So I, sure. as, I, as I may mention, I have been running luxury car dealerships and it was, it was a good career, but it was really two full-time jobs. For me, it was seven days a week. It was 10 to 12 hour days. And so as I'm looking at the quarter million dollars I'm making, I'm realizing I'm really just making, you know, 125 twice because I'm working, you know, 80 hours a week, 90 hours a week. And so I resigned from that and, and got brought on to this startup web hosting company, as I may mention, and I'm an affiliate manager and I don't understand what affiliate marketing is. I don't understand what web hosting is. No one can explain it to me. I just know I'm, a, I'm an inherent salesperson and I trust the guy that walked me in the front door. And so I start with this company. It's in Akron. I live in Columbus. So I'm commuting back and forth. And for what the, was the name of it, by the way, the, the, the company's name was Brainhost. 
was the web hosting okay. company. And so I'm commuting back and forth. And for the first six weeks that I'm a part of the company, the founders that hired me were on vacation. They just weren't there. So I have no one teaching me. I have nobody training me. No one can explain to me what's going on. I'm showing up to this office for, gosh, I think five grand a month. I'm like, what in the heck am I doing? Like this, this was such a bad decision. I need to jump back into familiarity of the car business. And then something clicks. And I don't even remember exactly what clicked, but I started to figure out, Josh, that I could put this affiliate offer on the backside of uh, opportunities to make money from home, like kind of the business opportunity space. Because back then we had designed a web builder prior to webs, you know, web.com, Wix, Weebly. We designed our own builder that someone could generate a, a website. We generate a website for them. We put affiliate links on it and we teach them how to monetize it very quickly. A whole different world back then, as I, I know you know, but as you're listening, you might not be familiar with how different the web is now versus, gosh, then that would be 12 years ago. A whole different place yeah. back. And so we go through this and it starts to connect, right? I find this one individual out of Tampa, Florida that connected me to 50 of the largest affiliates that probably in the, in the country, maybe even in the world. And so this little company goes from nothing to we're, we're doing 1,000, 1,500 web hosting signups a day, right? Which is, which is crazy volume. Our average shopping cart total was 250 bucks. It's like, we feel like we're printing, we, we are literally printing money back then. We, there was no competition. Absolutely. And so Affiliate Summit comes around and Affiliate Summit is, is an event in New York City. Back then it was in New York City in the fall and in Vegas in the spring. And the New York- It's in the, uh, the summer here. Yeah, it's in August, awesome. and now uh, with January coming up, Affiliate Summit West is going to be in Vegas at the end of January. Perfect. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. So Affiliate oh, Summit yeah. East in New York City in August, September, October, somewhere in there. It's a little mushy to me in my mind. But here's the it's first It's at the Merritt Marquis in Times Square. It is the dead of summer. It is miserable. And if you've never been to New York, uh, get the fuck away from Times Square. It is hell on earth. It is nothing but tourists and everything's 10 times as expensive as it needs to be. There's nothing authentic. I make it a, a, a journey every year to take a handful of my friends and colleagues and bring them to cooler areas of New York where we get to experience some of the really dope stuff because it's the only time we are can stomach to be around there. So I, I know exactly where you're talking about and it's awful. I, I love that you're painting such a vivid picture because that's exactly how I remember it. But I was a tourist, right? I'd never been to New York City before. Here I'm as a 27-year-old guy that I've traveled some, but I just had never been to New York City. So it's my first time in New York City. It's my first time meeting some of these affiliates. It's like, and these are guys that they're getting big checks from us. They're making me a bunch of money. And so the first night of Affiliate Summit, there's a, there's a party or a get-together, a gathering. And it's at a place called Juliet Supper Club is what it was back then. And we show up at midnight. Yep right? Myself, the owners of the business, kind of our team, we, we ran on a big pack back then. I think there might've been 10 of us. We show up at midnight, we're at the front door and there's nobody in line. I'm like, this is interesting. The doorman says, ah, look, you're, and I didn't know any of this back then. He goes, you don't have enough women with you. You guys aren't really that attractive. Your minimum is going to be 20 grand if you want in. I'm like, holy cow. Like I'm, I'm not ready for that. But the founder of the business is with me. He goes, oh, no problem at all. We'll go right in. Okay, so we, we walk in and we walk inside this, this supper club. It's really just a, you know, a bar nightclub. There's nobody there, Josh. I'm like, oh, man, these affiliate, these guys have punked me. They all said they're coming here. This has got to be some sort of gag. Well, by 1.30, the place starts filling up. And by three o'clock in the morning, this place is packed, like wall to wall packed. And I look over and it, it's a small environment back then. I don't know how large it would be, but maybe max capacity was 300 people. So it's a little bit of an intimate setting. And I look over to my right and Buster Rhymes is there. 
and the 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 the, the I was at this party. The majority of the offense. I remember this party. I love this. The majority of the offense yes. for the New York Giants was there. Some other pretty decent size, you know, professional athletes and and celebrities were there. And in our drunken stupor at that point, uh, my partner, well, who ended up being my partner, but the founder of the business, grabs the blister-sized bottle of Dom, right? The biggest bottle, opens up the cork and just starts spraying everybody and completely soaks Buster Rhymes, all the giants. And like, and I'm sitting there, my eyes are the size of half dollars. So I'm certainly inebriated, but I'm, I'm aware enough to see what's going on. And Buster Rhymes security stands up and they're about ready to kill my business partner. Well, the guy that was my big affiliate had an RMRPG watch on. Like it was, and he took it off right away. Says, whoa, 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 hold on. I'll give you my watch if you don't hurt everybody. And so the, the bouncer's like, all right, we'll let it go. Give me your watch. So we give we give Buster Rhymes bouncers this Oddmar Piguet watch from the, our biggest affiliate. And we end up, you know, comparing our, our bar tabs the next morning, right? It's uh, over a very hungover breakfast. We're sitting there looking at our bar tabs and it's, it's our, our business. And back then there was a company called the Tax Club that was owned by a, a, a series of individuals. And so we're sitting down and our bar tab for that event was 75,000 bucks and theirs was 105,000. So between the two of us, you know, we spent $180,000 in maybe four hours, Josh, maybe, maybe four and a half. And just in there saying like, holy cow, here, here I am this Midwest guy from Columbus, Ohio. I've never been to New York city. I, I, I love sports. I love hip hop music. And I'm around all these people and I'm seeing money fly around. I'm seeing this odd Mar watch. I'm a watch guy that this guy literally has so little value and he just takes it off and gives it to somebody. I'm like, this is absolutely nuts. Only be followed up the next night with me taking a bunch of people to back then it was greenhouse. It was a club and getting, getting into greenhouse and getting some of my team members. So inebriated that we, they ended up falling asleep in their bed in the, in the times square Marriott Marquis. We took the sheets off the bed and carried them into the elevator and put them in the elevator and pushed down to the lobby. So when you open the elevator door, the, my coworkers were passed out drunk on a sheet and their pillow <laughs> inside a, inside an elevator. So I've got stories like that for, for quite some time from that little affiliate marketing side of life, where it was just seeing how quickly back then that money could be generated and how quickly it could be spent as well was just this fascinating thing to experience. So I think we may have actually met then because around the same time I was working with somebody, I was helping them to build their business. And they basically, there was a big thing where you could go into any industry, any niche and create a review site. And you go to whoever the product owner was and ask them for a review copy. So essentially, hey, can I get a copy of your thing for free? Uh, and I'm going to review it. And if you knew SEO, you know that people are going to be looking up whatever the name of this program is, you know, how to make money passively through real estate investing, whatever it's called. <clears throat> They're going to want to know if it's a scam. So you would optimize for the words like scam, review, peer review, legitimate. And so this was blogging software, or there was the course I would teach you how to do these reviews. It would build, help you build the website. We uh, also have affiliate promotions on there. So our rule was you can have it, but we have to have our banners here. And if you want it hosting, you can either take care of all that hard stuff yourself or for a little bit extra, we'll help you get it set up. So you don't have to think about anything. And then on the webs, on the side of your site, we just want you to place our banners. Well, that way, if somebody were to come to the site and they were to click on a banner and buy, uh, the person that I was working with, he would earn the affiliate commission. 
so we were at this same event. We were at a club called Marquee until around 1.32 or in the morning. And then we went over to Juliet and we knew that Buster Himes was there and we saw the Gus and the Giants and all that. So I don't know if we actually spoke or interacted at all that night. I, I don't recall at all, but I know for a fact I was at that same party. And because of you working for that uh, web hosting company, we probably worked together to some capacity and never realized it. Yes, it's so... What I find to be fascinating, Josh, is to me, the world ends up getting smaller and smaller every day. It's like, the, the, so I'm so conscientious now more than ever of how I interact with people, how I treat people. Am I taking that extra moment to make someone feel special? Because it's moments like this where who knows what life could have unfolded had I been consciously aware of you being in that room and spent time getting to know you. It's not that I did something wrong to you back then. I certainly hope not. I mean, no, no, no. That we don't remember. So like, I, I yeah, you're a complete jerk. Yeah, right. It's, <laughs> but but it's saying the fact of just, gosh, you never know the person that you're in front of right now, how they're going to play a role in your life later, how they know someone that knows someone that's going to play a role. And especially in that M&A space, it's, it's, it's paramount. To, to me, I always take the high road. Like I'll take the shorter end of the deal. I'll take the, the road less traveled because it's important to me. It's important to me to leave a good taste in people's mouth. Absolutely. And I've been in the, the online affiliate info product world since 2007. It's a very small world. There are people that know me that I, I have no idea who they are, but they followed my entire career or a good chunk of it who come up to me at conferences and want to take selfies and this and that. And it's really cool. And now I'm working a deal with a, um, a restaurateur and you would not believe how small that world is. And you'd think there's so many restaurants in New York City. There's stats that show you could eat at a different restaurant for three meals every single day for the rest of your life. You'll never go to the same restaurant again in twice because there's so many. You would not believe how small that world is. It's like a little club of a handful of restaurateurs that they control everything. And not like it's not like a mafia tactic kind of thing. It's because they're the go-to that have the best food, the best environments. They know all the right people. If you need construction done, they know the, the non-union construction companies to call. You need produce vendors. They know the ones to talk to. And, and it, it really is true. In every industry, I'm finding it's like that. Uh, everybody just know at some point, everybody knows everybody. So it is really important for your own longevity to not get a reputation for being a jackass. Absolutely. Like sometimes the best money I've spent is the most painful money, right? When, when a deal goes the wrong way and you're, you're sitting there looking and everybody wants to make sure they get what's quote unquote rightfully theirs. It's not that I, I want to take the shortest end of the stick, but I find if I just push the chips back to the middle of the table, some of the, some of the fodder that comes, some of the fallout on the, on the on- onset, it's not as, it's not as heavy for me. Right. Cause not every, that's the other side we don't talk about. I think enough in MA. not every deal gets to the finish line. Not every deal, no. right. It books itself out. Not every deal. Like there's business owners I could spend time with it. Oh yeah. My business is doing 10 million a year at a 30% net margin. Everything's perfect. And you dive in and you start looking at their financials and they don't even have financials. They're, they're literally looking at their bank account and guesstimating where things sit. We've got a whole structure built around the assumption of what they've made mention of. And it's not that they're bad people. They're doing things wrong. They're just ill-equipped. They're ill-informed. They, they haven't been through this before. And so, so many times those relationships for me are just not the right relationships to be in, in that moment, right? I, I don't want to help somebody rebuild their financials. It's, it's not enjoyable for me, but it's not that they've done something wrong. So it's figuring out how to break up with them eloquently in that season or introducing them to somebody that's better suited to help solve their issues in those moments. It just. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. I, I developed. 
and I know it's not the most significant, uh, uh, it's not the most um, eloquent framework, but I've developed my own five-part framework, which I look at to evaluate any business, marketing, sales, operation, production, numbers. And each one feeds into the next. You have to start with marketing because that's kind of the ox- your lungs breathing in oxygen. And then that connects directly to the sales process. If you don't have marketing and sales, you don't have revenue. You don't have a business. You're starving. And you look at the operations. And this is everything from how you're training employees, setting SOPs, defining your KPIs. What is the process for hiring and firing? How is everybody working? What are our vendor relationships looking like? You go into production and now it's actually, how are we creating the, the widget or whatever the product is at the best quality possible for the lowest price and keeping the customers as happy as possible. And then finally, it's it's the numbers. Let's review everything we've done and see how much money we've either made or lost. See where we're losing money and can we stop the bleeding? Seeing where we're making money, how do we double down in that? And not nobody's going to be good at all five, ever. You're not going to meet somebody that is a, a superstar at all five. So when you go into a deal and they're giving you, you know, that, that initial consultation or that meeting they have with them where you're kind of talking about it before you really dive into the nitty gritty, they're giving you their best guesstimate and they know there's going to be due diligence. So if they lie to you, it's going to come out very soon. So most people are not deliberately trying to lie. It's that's the best version of the truth that they know. And so you kind of have to really then go in and say, okay, is that the whole picture or is there going to be some surprises that I need to be ready for? Yeah, absolutely. Josh, I mean, for for me is is if there was a a pearl of wisdom to consider, it's what what I found is in in my belief and my framework, love what you're sharing about yours and a, a perfect client, a perfect person to work with me is someone that right? An exit somewhere in the future, but it's, they know it's past 24 months because it, when you really look at what it takes to get all those individual components, even just those five components, but each one of those five probably has 10 levels below them. We could talk about. Sure. Sure. But it's saying, gosh, let's talk about the exit itself. How's your business structured? Are you a C corp? Are you an S corp? Are you an LLC? What's the structure there? When you sell your business, do you want to be taxed as ordinary income or capital gains? Do you know the difference? If you're happy giving up 20% to the federal government, do this thing. If you want to keep that 20%, there's a whole other structure we have to build. But that structure has to mature. That structure has to has to have some time and some legs behind it. You need 14 to 16 months after completion to make sure that the additional growth is, is categorized as capital gains. And, and what are some different ways we can navigate those waters? So by de facto, the, the, the individual companies say, I want to sell in the next six months. It's like, gosh, do you have you know, third-party audits done in your financials? Do you have documented systems and processes in place for all key functions? Do you have, you know, trending done on your marketing efficiency ratios, your conversion rates, some things that I know someone's going to want to look at? If they say no, it's, you can still sell in six months. You're just probably not the best fit to work with me because you're leaving, in some situations, tens of millions of dollars on the table by being hasty, right? It's just- Yeah, I mean, that situation- the biggest winner in that situation is the IRS. Yes. So uh, my next question was going to be basically what would be one of your um, best piece of advice or, or pros of wisdom? I think you just gave it to us. Yeah. Unless you had something else, but that's, that's fantastic to know that you need this runway before your business can realistically sell. You can get it out quicker and easier and, and sooner. And if you uh, go directly to the buyer and you know somebody 
that they're interested in buying, sure, you can turn that over quickly. I mean, I'm involved in a big roll-up right now where we've taken over um, 40 women's personal development companies and we're um, almost to 20 men's personal development. I'm, I'm starting to feed uh, some more those kind of companies in there. We're acquiring these businesses very quickly because the owners are staying on to participate in the final sale because we have a whole plan about how we're going to get everybody there effectively over time, you know, so they got a good chunk of money already and they're going to get a much bigger one later down the line. Um, but the person, the guy that's uh, kind of spearheading all this, he's made his career for decades out of doing these deals. So he has everything in place that a person that's only been doing it a few years just wouldn't have. He has all the resources in the world. So it's possible, but it's not probable. Yeah, Josh. And I would say if there's an additional pearl of wisdom or, or piece of advice I would share with someone, it's look at your business through the eyes of a buyer, right? You as a business owner, you're intelligent. You have to be to, to be where you're at. But we we all think our child is the most beautiful. We think our we think our business is the absolute best. Well, look at the other way around. Really, when you get into what is due diligence, what is selling a business, it's mitigating risk for the next person. And so as you go through your business and look at where are all the vulnerabilities, where are all the risks, really all I'm doing is coming in on the backside and making sure that risk after risk after risk is shored up to the best of our ability while, while simultaneously not upsetting the natural flow of your business and hoping to increase revenue. And if, you, if you're so in, indoctrinated and entrenched in your day-to-day operations of the business and you say, no, my business is, I love this thing. I've given birth to it. I'm it's, I'm, I'm not ready to see it leave yet. You start to, to me, miss some of what it is to actually sell the business. You have to remain, an, uh, you know, emotionally neutral during a transaction because you're you're literally poking at everything that's wrong with the business. I mean, that's what that to me is what on the buy side. That's what I'm doing. I'm trying to devalue the business. On the sell side, I'm trying to make sure that all those devaluations are are shored up to the best of our ability. It's just that game of understanding the mental warfare and the psychology that goes into it. And so the advice in, in summation is, is simply sure up the vulnerabilities and remain emotionally neutral. Everything will work out how it's supposed to. Yeah. I mean, what you were saying earlier about going into some of these big private equity firms and you with no formal training, they look at you as a country bumpkin and that can be used to an advantage. I mean, really, in a lot of ways, this mimics the book, The Art of War. If they know that you're not able to take critiques well, and if they're sitting around, you know, the buyers are sitting around the table with you and your team, and they see that you react really badly to, to criticisms, guess who they're directing every criticism at from that point on? Every difficult question, every hole, they are focusing on you. I, uh, I read something years ago that was showing that um, large corporations that do this kind of stuff or commercial real estate or, you know, just huge sales and, and, uh, deals like this, if you look at their executive boards and the people that are at those giant conference room meetings, there's nobody in there that's going to be severely overweight or obese because they look at that person as having no self-control, no self-respect, no self-esteem. And there's just all these insulting ways that somebody's going to look at you and they're going to say, you're the weak link. I know how to attack now. And that really is it. I'm in the process of getting ready to start to take a music education company that I've owned and loved dearly for the last six years. And I'm, I want to be able to sell it. I've already told my partner, I am bringing in a proxy for me. 
because I don't want to be part of that. I know the person who I'm bringing in is incredibly great at what they do. She's taken two companies from uh, that she started and taking them both public. She's amazingly good. At, she's way better than I am. And she knows my business well and doesn't have uh, any emotional stake in it. So I'm going to just tell her, listen, I will give you this slice. You're my proxy because I don't want to be in those meetings. Not that I don't think I could hold my stuff together. I don't want to risk that. Yeah. And and Josh, it's it's such a profound thing you're sharing that it's that it's that being self-aware, right? And I think the, the natural maturation of most businesses, right? We go through cycles, we go through seasons where you said those five things that one individual couldn't be inherently great at all of them. Absolutely not to me. When you get to that friction point where you'd have to be great at all of them, it becomes your responsibility to go find the best talent that can be great at each one of those individual five silos. Then you get to the next season in life and it's, you probably will have outgrown those five individuals because there's a different skill set required. And it's also starting to look to replace yourself because you will become the bottleneck. And you look at the exits and things that are, are required that might be required to maximize that multiple. What, what a lot of CEOs don't understand is there's a good chance someone's going to want the CEO to stick around for another season, for a transition season. And if you've been a, an entrepreneur for the past 30 years of your life, you might not be prepared to have a boss, which you will have when you've just sold your company and someone else has bought it. You're better to bring somebody in, just like you said, Josh, as that proxy, appoint a new CEO, get them get them comfortable and familiar, put them in the chair, pay them a good salary, give them a little bit of equity. Then you're freeing yourself up for endless opportunities after the after the capital gains event, where a lot of people yeah. haven't been through that and don't think about it. Absolutely. At the, at the very least, you could say that you're not staying on as the full-time CEO, but you'll be able to work as an advisor to some capacity. And that means that you no longer have a boss because advisors, you're more or less freelance. You don't have yeah. bosses, you know? Sure. So there, there's definitely ways around this. Uh, Ryan, this has been an absolute pleasure. I love getting to talk to really smart people like yourself that are doing some awesome things. Uh, if somebody wants to learn more about you or think that you're the right person to help them kind of uh, get ready to sell their business for the most amount of money possible, how can they do that? How can they find you? Yeah, thanks, Josh. So just ryanidell.com that's r-y-a-n-n-i-d-d-e-l.com or on any social platform every handle i have is ryan Adele, so linkedin twitter instagram facebook i put out content that is to me impactful for what i'm going through it's not to inspire somebody i'm just documenting my own journey right kind of taking a, a gary v type approach to it of just here's what i'm going through here's what i'm up to here's what i'm reading so if you want to know more about me or what i stand for or what i believe in any one of those platforms is going to give you a crystal clear view into the good and the not so good that is Ryan Nidell. That's awesome. Ryan, thank you very much for your time. Again, ryannidell.com. Check him out. This man, clearly he knows what he's talking about. This is a very smart man. Um, so you'd be a fool not to work with him if uh, you're at that stage in your business. But for today, this has been another episode of Business Gorillas Podcast. Everyone have a great one. I'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Business Gorillas Podcast. If you're a highly successful entrepreneur and want to be a guest, go to businessgorillaspodcast.com and fill out the form.
Remember to share us on social media. Click the subscribe button. Leave us a five-star rating and review if you got anything out of the show. Feel free to connect with us on social media. If you're looking to connect with world-class top marketers and some of the most experienced fractional chief marketing officers in the world today, head on over to verygoodmarketingconsultants.com. On behalf of your host, Josh Rosenberg, thank you for listening to the Business Gorillas Podcast.